You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories podcast and a special uh, event for the Storycraft Cafe. Today, I am super excited to have Suzanne Park back on the show. She has a brand new book that's coming out next week when we're recording this. When you're hearing this, uh, it'll either be out today or tomorrow. (laughs) It comes out Tuesday, (laughs) October 4th. So however that works out for you and your time zone. The Christmas Clash. Uh, what a fun book. Um, Suzanne, how have you been? I've been great. Um, things have been going a lot better now that I guess businesses are opening and schools back in session and things are um, running more smoothly now. Um, a year later since we've spoken. Um, and thanks for having me again. Yeah, I oh, love this you're- podcast. You're so welcome. Uh, last year when we talked, um, you know, we we had hope for the future, but we weren't quite sure yet how uh, everything was going to go. So um, I'm super glad to be sitting at the place where we are now um, than we were a year ago. Sure. Yes. I mean, in fact, I'm having my first L.A. Um, based in-person event. I've never had my own book release event uh where I live. And it's kind of funny that two and a half years later, after I debuted, (laughs) that I'm actually having my first event where, you know, can invite friends and family that are local. That's, that is amazing. Um, You know, it's, there's, uh, there's something to be said for, for getting to, to go out on book tour or, you know, making the, the podcast rounds and, and stuff like that. And that's all wonderful. and, And we love it. But there is something special about getting to invite people that have, uh, you know, kind of followed you all along or, you know, been in real life and getting to see uh, what you do. That's that's a great feeling. It is. And my parents are actually going to be there, which could be a good or bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't uh, decided. Um, I explained to my in-person conversation partner that they would be there. Um, probably knowing them on the front in the front row. So uh, this should be interesting at the very least, because I don't think they've seen me speak in, in front of an audience in a, quite a long time. So that'll be fun for them too. Oh, that's going to be so fun. Um, so speaking of your parents, um, wh- what was your, your household like growing up? What were, were you guys a bookish family? Well, how did, how did books uh, kind of play into um your family life? We didn't really have many books in our house. I I, I remember when uh, my parents recently moved closer to us for retirement, and we've been in the same house forever um, in Tennessee. And part of that move was getting rid of all of our childhood stuff and figuring out what would go with them and what would um, be donated. And we did find books that were in the house. Um, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, Serica 1980, maybe um, <laughs> uh, Encyclopedia Britannica books, <laughs> which 
are very in high demand now, I'm sure. Um, we found those, and then we had a few Star Wars books that were movie tie-ins, and that's all we really found. So I think when it comes to books and growing up, I think I spent, I do know that I spent a lot of time in the public library system uh, in our both in our neighborhood, um, our neighborhood library, but also when I was in school, uh, in high school, uh, it was more of a metropolitan area. And I spent a lot of time in that library in the Nashville downtown public library. Uh, so most of my reading and uh, I guess checking out books and being able to consume books all took place in libraries. Um. The, you um, and I think we talked about this last time that the fact that you did grow up uh, in Nashville, um, Nashville is is known, you know, kind of as a as a music mecca for a lot of um, for a lot of different uh, genres of music. We we think, you know, kind of immediately as country music coming from Nashville, but really all sorts of music um, that Nashville is a hub for that. And and there's a, a a whole industry built around the music business, music production, performing, but also writing. Um, it, is that something that that um, that casual um, citizens of Nashville uh, get to get to see going on? Do you see the 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 kind of emphasis that's on songwriting and kind of that mode of storytelling um, just being a a citizen of Nashville? I do think that there is influence on people who grow up there. When I, looking back to my high school days, I remember a lot of uh, kids being interested in theater and music and and uh, songwriting and that sort of thing because it was a school that emphasized the arts. And, uh, and now there are also people that we knew that were close our family that were um, adjacent to uh, the music industry, not necessarily singers and songwriters themselves, but they worked in production and things. So it's hard to not be somewhat influenced by it, um, just as somebody that just lives there. Uh, but if you ask anybody that grew up there, they have a very strong opinion on whether they like country music. They either love it or hate it, or if it's in between, it's very rare. <laughs> You'll get a firm opinion because i think when you leave uh nashville people always ask you that you know do you love country music um and i think when i was younger i i did enjoy kind of the old school country music like the loretta lynn or the dolly parton um and it's not until recently that uh, you hear more of the mainstream uh country music even kind of coming into the pop world and it's changed so much and i had this sort of this uh, uh new appreciation for sort of the direction that country music has gone over the past few years. You started um, your career as a stand-up comic. Um, did did kind of living in a city that was very performance-based, did, did that factor into your, uh, your love of comedy at all? I would say that um, when I performed comedy, it really was um, after I graduated and uh, when I was living in New York, that it really became something that I thought was possible only because I didn't know that there were comedy clubs in Nashville. Um, it had seen them around when I was in New York and it sort of all kind of fell into place that that's, oh, that's something that's accessible and something I can do. 
um, when I did go back to Nashville, I did realize that there was a comedy club that was uh, had been there for a long time. And I actually uh, reached out to them and they let me perform a, a few sets when I come back for the holidays. Uh, and it was just nice to actually just be it, it wasn't something I had to try out for or anything. I kind of had established myself enough in New York for them to just let me on on the show. And I was able to invite my friends from Nashville um, to just come and see me. And that was just nice because it felt like I was doing this whole production, but it was uh, with my friends and family. And it was just a nice, like warmer environment because there was a lot of support around me. Does does your time in stand up, does that bleed over in into your writing career? I think that the stand up experience that I had definitely uh, bled over into my career in writing. Um, usually when I try to think of a book idea, I have to decide if it's a scene premise or a, a actually a big enough idea to uh, carry over into a novel. Um, and usually it's based on something comedic or something uh, high stakes that only a character uh, in a comedic situation could run into. So um, typically, you know, something goes wrong and then more things go wrong. And because of the way that I had learned the craft of writing storytelling on, on stage, uh, writing jokes and uh, telling short anecdotes with a funny punchline. Uh, that really comes into play when it comes to not only just like efficiency of words and beats and timing, but it also just how to create a scene so that you have the sort of nervous anticipation of what's about to happen. And then kind of not just take it to where people expect, but kind of push it farther and higher. Uh, <laughs> so it's hopefully surprising and delighting people, but also kind of uh, like, oh, no, she went there with that. <laughs> <laughs> when when you're uh, developing a, a stand-up routine and you start thinking of a premise, and then um, I, I'm I'm not a stand-up comic, but um, I, I'm I'm completely guessing here. But um, you know, I would think that you come up with a premise and then think, you know, how can I kind of spin this premise around so that people, uh, you know, I, I come up with something that they're not expecting and it kind of takes them off guard, and that's you know kind of the fun of it. Um, and I, I would uh, think that I would I would kind of relate that to maybe um, short storytelling. There is, there's kind of one main uh, kind of emphasis that I'm going for here. And then, you know, think of maybe a, a whole stand up special as, you know, a journey through these different premises and, and things that you're taking the audience through. And, and maybe that's more akin to novel writing where it's a it's a longer journey and maybe there's callbacks to you know, all through the novel. Um, do, does that equate at all um, like that? Or am I just completely um, reading more into it than I should? I, I think you're, you are onto something there. Um, it really is hard to do a long comedy set, I have to say, and just as hard as it is to write a novel. 60 minutes on stage is generally like the minimum to be a, a headliner, for example. I was building up to that. And I got as far as creating like 60 minutes of solid material. Um, and I have to say, just performing it and refining it and making it seem seamless, uh, weaving the stories together, or the jokes together, uh, has a very similar quality to writing a novel. Um, but 
when it comes down to, uh, you know, writing your jokes and coming up with premises, uh, most of mine were based on anecdotes or funny things that uh, seem kind of like observational humor uh, and something, again, I like to present something unexpected at the end. I, I, I would almost say that that just the perspective of the comic uh, and the way they tell the story and the things they uh, reveal has a lot to uh, a strong parallel to characterization when you're um, creating a character and how they view the world and their point of view uh, and, uh, you know, what kind of voice they have. And so, uh, well, like one of my jokes uh, that I thought was one of my most, I guess, one of my favorite jokes, I would say, uh, is one that I think usually people are surprised at the end. It's um, It was about how I had taken up running um, when I was living in New York. And so, you know, you say, oh, I just started some exercise routines. So, like I started running and people clap, right? Because that's like, <laughs> you were polite, hooray for you. Um, and then, you know, I explained that a lot of people are worried about the safety issue because I like to run at night. That also sets up certain expectations. And then I say, well, I like to run at night with like a black t-shirt, black running pants, black running shoes, and a black <laughs> ski mask. <laughs> and uh, people are still worried about my safety. And so because it's sort of that thing where you expect something out of the, the person telling the story and it takes it to a whole different place um, I love doing that in my novels, too. And I think the joke uh, craft really helped me figure out how to kind of take something and really um, enhance the characterization in all of my novels of just, uh, you know, the way they see life and certain kind of things that might seem mundane and ordinary to somebody might be completely taken differently by the, by the main character. One of one of the best things about novels is um, picking up a novel, seeing the cover, reading the blurb, thinking that um, that, you know, what this story is going to be about. You know, OK, I, I see where what Suzanne's setting up for here. I, I know I trust her as a storyteller. This is going to uh, this is going to end up in a certain way. But I'm really excited to see how Suzanne takes me there. And then when you close the back cover of that book. You're like, oh, I never saw that coming. That's <laughs> what did I just where did I just go in this story? You know, that that is the best part. So kind of subverting expectations is one of the best parts about being a writer, I think. I agree. And, you know, the back cover copy can only contain so many words and characters. And so right. sometimes when uh, people read my book, they think it's one thing. And then when they read uh, when they finish it, they de usually have things that they were not expecting um, at all from the back cover copy. Um, one of the things going into the Christmas Clash, for example, is I really wanted to talk about something I've never um, had in any of my novels is the idea of family secrets. I literally went in there going, I've never written a book about family secrets. I don't want it to be like like a mystery, but I do like the idea of having families hide information from their kids. And I really went in there thinking, how, how am I going to incorporate that into this book? Um, it's That might not be something, for example, that uh, would make it onto the back cover, or it might not even be something that uh, is mentioned very often in uh, the reviews and such. But I really thought that that was something that I wanted to try as an author. I, I think I was 
pretty successful in incorporating that kind of organically into the story. And it'd be something I haven't tried, but also um, kind of changes, uh, you know, where you think the story is going and then reveal something about the family that um, even the characters didn't know. Yeah. Um, and the the challenge is to um, to get a reader on the hook with that back cover copy like you're talking about. Um, but to take the well, how do I say this? Um, like, like you want there to be surprises in the Christmas Clash, for instance, since we're talking about the new book. Um, and you want people to go on a journey they didn't expect to go on. Um, but when you sell a book like the Christmas Clash, um, you don't expect to see Terminator robots, you know, show up in the second <laughs> act somewhere, you know. So there, there's yes. a there's the balance of subverting expectations while also staying within the confines that that the reader expects and 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 sometimes that's a tightrope that is that is hard to walk yes i i completely agree especially when there is a book actually just in general i like to write stories that blend genres and so uh, my debut ya the perfect escape was probably i would categorize it as an adventure comedy uh with romance and you know there's no real space for that on the Barnes and Noble bookshelf. <laughs> like, here are all the books that are like this. And so uh, usually people like to have things fall into one, uh, you know, the confines of, of a category. And when I don't fully write within the lines, it uh, it becomes a little bit hard to figure out how to, you know, uh, position the book uh, and then what type of readers would be most likely to have an affinity for this kind of book. Um, one of the people who blurred my book, one of the authors, she said that, you know, my book is like a modern day Romeo and Juliet, but a comedy without the death and tragedy. And I'm like, well, that's a pretty good description of this book. But I, you know, I don't think that that's something that, you know, would go on the front cover of a book, but it is exactly the right tone and like, the humor around even that type of blurb is is uh, really reflective of this book. Um, so it is hard, I think, for um, publishers and authors to figure out how to best um, explain what this book, the like the book is in a summary where you could get all the nuance. And so I, I think the Christmas Clash overall, it, you could call it definitely a holiday rom-com, but there are definitely layers in there um, that will be different than your typical holiday rom-com. I want to come back to the Christmas Clash in just a minute because there's some specific things about this new book that I want to ask you about. But before we do, um, we were talking before we started recording uh, that you're at a writer's conference right now. And uh, and I was telling you that we were just starting this writing challenge with Dabble that uh, the the writer, uh, the first draft of a novel in 60 days is, is basically the premise to go from having an idea to a uh, to a, a plot for. Uh, for the new book and then to write a first draft and to kind of bang that out. And and we've got a big group of participants that have signed up and we're kind of going on this journey together and we're doing weekly podcasts about it. And there there's something magical that happens when you get a group of people that decide to be creative together, even if it's uh, if it's not a shared writing experience, like uh, I'm sure there are probably some people that are maybe co-writing, but um, but a lot of times 
we won't specifically know what each other are writing, but just being part of a group that's doing something like this together, um, you know, there's a certain kind of magic that happens with that. Um, being at an in-person writers uh, conference that you are, what, what, what kind of, what kind of things does that feed the writer soul? Um, you know, getting to attend in-person events and you know, bouncing ideas off of people and, and what does what does that do for a writer that just being in a solitary writing office can't give you? I love uh, being around other writers um, and authors. I I think it's very important when you're, especially when you're starting out to be around other people who are excited and enthusiastic about writing. One of the, I'm actually, so I'm at a writer's retreat of people who I met at a writer's conference. And when we all met uh, five years ago at this writer's conference, uh, some of us are published and some of us are unpublished, but we ended up kind kind of finding each other um, and there at that specific writers conference, there were um, speakers and there were breakout sessions and um, I guess talks, sort of small groups uh, focused on craft. But in the end, when you left the conference, there wasn't actually a lot of writing time. And that was always something that was kind of interesting <laughs> to come out of a conference for writing um, and then not actually have written very much. Uh, it was just something that I noted. And then I went back the next year and the same thing happened again. So the purpose of this writing retreat where we grew, you know, I just grabbed, we just grabbed three or four people. Um, it rented an Airbnb in the middle of Arizona and <laughs> thought, if we're not near anything interesting and, uh, you know, we decide that we're all just going to sit here and write, maybe we'll actually get more of the writing done. And we're also at a part of our careers where I think, um, certain craft uh, subjects uh, might not be as important now as they were five years ago when we were first starting out. So I think a lot of it is finding the right fit for what type of thing you're looking for. Um, What the Writers' Conference did when I first started out, um, what it did was help me just meet other writers and actually learn how to meet other writers. And then uh, I was able to find a few really good friends from that conference who have stayed friends. And now, uh, you know, we do check-ins, we do Zoom check-ins, but it was just nice to finally meet in person after we hadn't seen each other since before the pandemic. And as I'm in this uh, podcast, like they're all in separate areas of the Airbnb and they're all working on different things. And it's pretty quiet out there from what I can tell. Uh, (laughs) There's a little bit of typing and a lot of scribbling. Um, and I think people are really kind of heads down getting to work. Uh, so I think what we try to create here is work. So that was nice. It was an experiment and um, there's snacks on the table, of course, uh, plenty of uh, <laughs> water. <laughs> so where there's no problem there. So we'll be fine at fed. And now it's just a matter of just trying to get words on paper or on the screen. Do you have um, like opportunities at the end of the day where you kind of share uh, things that you've worked on or uh, maybe problems that you're up against, or is it just kind of the knowing that you're all in the trenches together? So far, organically, it's come up where every, you know, 30 minutes or so, somebody just talks out loud (laughs) the problem they're facing. (laughs) Um, 
And it works because we kind of need those breaks anyway. Uh, you know, I like to stand up and walk around, for example, and other people are just sort of, you know, during their breaks, just, you know, uh, getting a glass of water or grabbing something to eat. Um, it, the problems that I just recently faced, I'm working on um, final edits for the book that's coming out in April. And <laughs> I asked really loudly as it as I opened up the PDF, I said, uh, what's a dangling participle again? I have to fix something. <laughs> and somebody, somebody who's way better at grammar was just able to quickly do it, tell me. And I explained what my, uh, the sentence structure was. They gave some ideas and I said, thanks. And then I was done with that. So it's, it's funny because it could go as simple as that, something very specific and line edit specific to another friend is sort of working on trying to figure out uh, what type of, whether she needs to switch um, genres completely as an author and, uh, it, you know, some of the things that she's kind of dealing with from writing from uh, writing from scratch, like a new uh, outline and a new synopsis in a genre she hasn't written. She'll occasionally ask questions, too, from other people within the group who do write in that genre. So, so far, it's been um, a process of like us just sort of talking out loud and but we did say that maybe at the end of the day today we can workshop something that, that we've written um i don't know if that will stick but because uh, i think two out of the four of us are on the shire side and haven't done that before um i personally get i don't know about the reading out loud but i i have a writer's group who uh, are not just novel writers they're uh, they write plays and they write um you know short web uh, web episodes and they uh, read my work and have strong feelings about them. <laughs> <laughs> so I get my work critiqued at least monthly. And so I'm used to sort of that sort of shopping, but um, two others are not. So we'll see if that is something we try. Uh, at the very least, though, it looks like we're uh, actually writing. So that's, again, the main goal of this trip. Um, are you a, a a hardcore planner? Um, you, you mentioned outlines and synopsis earlier. And I know, uh, you know, a lot of times the, the publisher will kind of want to have an idea of what you're working on next. And, you know, that forces you to kind of think through stories ahead of time. Um, but, you know, when you get down to the nitty gritty of writing, are you working from a plan and outline or are you kind of letting it go more organically? I would describe my process as sort of a signpost documenter meaning like not quite a pantser not quite a plot or plotter and some people combine them as plant, plot planter and plotster i don't think i'm still <laughs> either of those <laughs> what i what i do try to do at the very least before i start something is have the main pitch the idea the where the whole like summary of the elevator pitch um, and then along the way, I know I need an inciting incident. I need to make sure that the midpoint uh, reversal, the midpoint section is not muddy and boring. I know that I need a climax, a dark moment, and a conclusion. And so <laughs> if I know what those are, I can at least start writing words. And I think if you think about it, that's less daunting, I think, than a full actually writing a synopsis. I find even though I have those things kind of sorted out sometimes, I find writing the synopsis itself like homework or writing a five page or five paragraph essay back in high school, which would always just like 
give me heart palpitations. So um, I, I prefer to kind of just know what those, where that's going. And then uh, each book is different though. So I think one of my earlier books, I found a notebook that I had dedicated to this, this book. And it was almost like a flow chart where I had a main plot and I had a subplot uh, and then some character development. And I just wrote little arrows on like a that I would take, like um, write and kind of where they were going toward the end of the story. And it was just, I had my main, uh, I guess, signposts, but then also underneath it, I had like this interesting flow diagram that I've never done for any other book, but it was just showing the direction of their arc, uh, both the story arc and also the character arc. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, maybe I'll try to do that again, but I have never done that. Again. I like that idea of the flow chart as of, of kind of allowing you to visualize the uh, kind of how the scenes are going to work together and parts of the story flow into each other. That's that's a great idea. It is. And it really worked for that book. I was kind of tangled up in uh, not having the story move forward. And I, I mean, there's a lot of people in the craft world who say that each scene needs to move the story along for a reason. And right. I was always just writing scenes, either just to write jokes or just, you know, hey, this is a funny thing that happens, just to write words down. And then when I realized that wasn't making the story flow, and maybe that's where I wrote arrows, I would end up having to leave the scene. And that was one that it was, uh, it, it worked for that particular book. Because I wanted it to be a fast-moving book. The Christmas Clash, your new book that's uh, either, when people are hearing this, either releasing today or tomorrow, um, I, however that works for you and the reality <laughs> you're living in. Um, the Christmas Clash, what what was the uh, the initial thought when you started thinking about a holiday rom-com? It was, it, it was something that the publisher had asked if I would ever be, consider writing. Um, and so it was already something that I was thinking like, oh, that would be something that's different. And I do like to do something different for each book. Um, and I couldn't help but to tie um, a mall experience with the holidays because I do see that done sometimes. But for teenagers to work in a mall and it to be a mall themed book, I thought that would be a lot of fun to write. Um, around the same time that I was uh, thinking of this concept, I decided to look up my local childhood mall uh, from uh, one of the suburbs out in Nashville. And I found out that the mall was closing uh, because yeah. it just couldn't find a buyer. And that made me really sad. So then I decided, let me write this book as an homage to this mall. And um, then I can, you know, write, document some of the stories. And a lot of the <laughs> absurd things that happened in the book are things that, um, were inspired by something that actually did happen to me at that local mall. <laughs> um, so that was kind of fun to like get that documented, write it down, make it funny. And at the end of me turning, once I turned in the book, I found out that a regional developer had actually bought them all. And so that was a nice uh, kind of happy ending anyway for me, because I was kind of sad that I was writing this book to, to kind of document um what this mall meant to me and then it ended up being that it was a it was saved too and so that was nice to uh have as kind of the what happened as the fate of this mall too boring family-owned restaurants in a mall food court 
is a hilarious premise. Um, how did you come up with with that idea? That is, it was so funny and 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 at the same time, completely believable. Like I could totally see um, how how this you know works out. That, what a great premise! <laughs> Thank you. I got the idea from um, first of all my my parents' friends owned a restaurant that was. Um, not at a mall, but just I, I had to go there every week. Uh, just to, I think my parents like to eat there and also like to chat with the, the parents. And it was a lot of uh, I got to see sort of the behind the scenes of running this restaurant. And this uh, this family had uh, other competing restaurants around them and just the trash talking they did and sort <laughs> of the, the like they felt everything was so personal and it was a lot of these things were just business. And so I really remember thinking one day I will write about this, even though my parents didn't actually run a restaurant. I, I did know a lot about that. And my parents did own businesses. So I know how um, like a small business is run. Um, and then on top of that, just the idea that these two teenagers also work in seasonal businesses at that same mall. One, uh, Chloe Juan, she's a Santa's photographer elf and um <laughs> peter lee is uh working at their virtual reality um north pole experience and it's like very high tech and it was also sort of putting them at war with each other because they have these warring warring businesses as well and on top of that at school they're always kind of held up to be compared to one another and so it was just like multiple layers of rivalry that was a lot of fun to write because it was you know deeply ingrained within the family just by having two restaurants that have always been competing. And then on top of that, just having their own competition as well. It was, uh, it just made it, uh, this book very uh, fun and easier to write than other books. Tropes are something that we, we talk about and well, it, you know, all genres have their tropes. Um, but when you're, when you're talking about romance, especially um, tropes are very, um, very prominent and and there are certain types of stories that people just love and if you say this is an enemies to lovers story people have um certain very real expectations about that book or if you say this is a holiday rom-com um they expect certain things when you are planning out your story and you know that these uh you know these are are uh uh, enemies, so to speak, you know, in the beginning, mm -hmm. and you know that they have to end up at a certain place. Um, you know, when you're kind of in your planning of the story, are you looking for opportunities to put um, roadblocks in front of these these characters that will uh, things that will drive them together, things that will allow them to let their guard down and and maybe to to see things um, that are different. Than their assumptions uh, are is that part of the planning like looking for ways that that you could kind of intersect these people's lives that would drive them together yes and no um i think a lot of authors actually do go in there and say this is going i want to write an enemies to lover story or i want to write a second chance romance and go into the story knowing that that's how they'll craft it and then there are some formulaic things you can do or uh, beats you can follow and story structure that a lot of stories do follow. For my stories, I try to make sure that 
the way uh, things unfold in somebody's life would happen uh, sort of in an organic, funny way, but also be more realistic than maybe would be typical of a typical romance. So, uh, for example, uh, this story, I think there's times that they look like they're going to get along and then things fall apart and they then again look like they're going to get along again and then things go awry as well. So that kind of, uh, you know, crashing into each other and then sort of separating, to me, that felt very organic and natural for teenagers. Um, I know a lot of stories sort of build up the enemies in that they're enemies for until the very end of the book. And for some reason, this that didn't really work too well with the way the story was um, unfolding, only because they do have to work together to save them all. And so they do have to get along to some degree or at least fake it or force it. Um, the part that I did know that I wanted to do was um, have a, a rivals to sweetheart. Uh, scenario. Um, so, you know, is this an enemies to sweethearts or is this rivals to sweethearts? I think um, the intention was it to be was for it to be rivals. Within rivalry, there's always some enemies component to it. But I would <laughs> sure. say it's closer to be rivals just because of the family structure, but also like how, um, you know, kind of the relationship starts out as childhood rivals. Um, but for sure, they're also enemies at the very beginning. Uh, how holiday is it is also um, an interesting thing, because I don't uh, I think what I wanted to do was to incorporate the holiday season, not necessarily only Christmas. I know Christmas is in the story um, title, but I did sure. want to capture that period of time that is between pumpkin spice latte season all the way up to the holidays, where it's just like all Christmas all the time. Um, and it's several months long and so i didn't want it to only focus on like just the you know around you know december 20 something um i i didn't want it to be this you know this longer stretch because i do find it funny that as soon as um like fourth of july goes down all of a sudden pumpkin spice latte stuff comes up and you're like <laughs> what what is going on when did this start i don't understand um so i called it like the uh the christmas creep uh, and right. it's definitely a real thing where it's scorching hot outside, and yet people are told that they have to drink pumpkin drink. And it was just sort of giving a nod to that sort of phenomenon that has happened in the recent past. I blame Hallmark for playing Christmas movies in July. I think that's where it stems from. That might be it, because <laughs> I, it just really seems very unnatural yeah. <laughs> and strange. But I, I believe that that's probably a Hallmark, Hallmark and a commercial push for sure. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, the Christmas Clash is marketed as a YA um, holiday romance. Um, when you're thinking in terms of your audience, um, are, are you thinking like, OK, this is a YA um, book. It's going to have to fit in inside certain standards, or is it that the characters are teenagers, therefore? Um, the story is going to uh, is going to come out a, a certain way because it's from their viewpoint. Um, wh what is it that makes um, a, a book YA? What that, and I think that that's a designation that that trips up some people. They're they're not exactly sure what that means. 
I honestly, um, you know, some people have a little bit harder of a time to flip between different uh, different age groups. And to me, it was a little bit more natural because I think I went in there knowing what I would change between an adult book and a young adult book. And that's specifically voice and perspective. Um, when you look at voice of a character, it's, you know, not just let's throw in some pulp pop culture references and slang. It's definitely not that. It is really how kids um, in today's society act and behave. Uh, and I feel like I, whether it's because I had a marketing background and are very is, am very attuned to like what an audience and target markets are, how they behave, uh, all the way to there's a lot of young adults in our my extended family and I'm around them quite a lot for holiday gatherings and just get togethers. And I can just uh, pick up and listen in and <laughs> observe how young, a younger audience act and, uh, and how they consume media and everything. Um, I, I've found that, again, that really also ties into characterization with the voice. Um, and so hopefully, and I have heard this from uh, young adult readers that you know, I definitely have been able to connect to a lot of people. And um, in some cases, in my last book, Sunny Song Will Never Be Famous, I got a, a lovely message from a young adult reader who um, picked up the book. They liked the cover. They read the book and was surprised by it and actually learned a lot from it so much that the book is about digital detox and uh, a teen influencer who ends up getting sent to a farm uh, for digital detox camp and <laughs> their device is off. There's no connection to the internet. And this uh, young adult reader wrote me and said that she actually decided to put her phone down and try to do more things with her school. And she is now on the rugby team because of me. And when you hear stories like that, you're like, well, you know, definitely this is something that even if it's not like the characters or the voice or anything specific, the message itself might be something that can be relatable to a young adult reader. Um, I mentioned um, voice and also perspective. I also think that sometimes adults um, kind of, uh, how do you say it, kind of use their whole, all the knowledge they've gained and use that to write um, for a younger gen, younger audience. And I don't know if that um, always resonates either because there's definitely, you know, the way a 14-year-old thinks is very different even than a 17 or 18-year-old thinks. And um, certainly with somebody that is writing a book that has, um, you know, are full-fledged adults, uh, they might try to incorporate some of their own knowledge and impart wisdom or whatever. And I don't know if that's always uh, going to work with this audience. So it's... Uh, and to be honest, there's things that people just would do differently as a younger person versus somebody that's um, wiser and have more years under their belt and have learned a lot over time. I think young adults should be allowed to make mistakes and learn from them. And I um, you know, hope that a lot of the books that are written for young adults show this um, as a learning experience and you um, give and allow that space to be able to do that. And the great thing is that uh, just because our protagonists are of a certain age, the rest of us get to enjoy these stories as well. That's the best part. Yes, 
Yes. There's for the Christmas clash, uh, just because of the type of mall I was writing, uh, is like a mall trapped in time almost. There is a definitely nostalgia aspect that I wanted to play up. And I think the adults that have read this book uh, have really enjoyed kind of the nod to suburban mall culture that, uh, you know, that is something that been the younger generation, but also sort of, you know, people who grew up kind of uh, basically living at the mall, they um, appreciate the nods to some of the stores and the things, storefronts and the restaurants and that are still around today that, you know, were, you know, amusing even back then. Uh, you know, so I think having that a bit of nostalgia for a mall book was uh, something I put in intentionally. Love it. The Christmas Clash is going to be available everywhere October 4th. This is a, a must read, uh, especially for this time of year. You're going to love it. Um, Suzanne, we're going to put links to it uh, in the show notes where people can grab it in Kindle edition or paperback or the audio book. Have you, have you gotten to listen to the audio book yet? I haven't listened to the final one. I um, have heard little tidbits, but I need to, I definitely want to listen to see how it all came together because it's two, two, um, two actors uh, uh, for the different characters. I'm anxious to see how that comes out as well. Uh, go grab the Christmas Clash. Go visit your local bookstores uh, and and grab it there or grab it from Amazon uh, with the links that we'll provide. Suzanne, if people are just, you know, discovering you on this podcast and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're up to, where can they find you online? They can find me at my newly revamped website, which I just uh, finished up within the last month. It's uh, nice. SuzannePark.com. Uh, I We have updated with all my latest um you know, my newest books coming out. Uh, and then they can also find me on, uh, most likely find me on Instagram at Suzanne Park. Uh, Twitter, I'm there sometimes. Uh, also Suzanne Park. And then Facebook, I'm occasionally there. Um, and that is at Suzanne Park Comics. Excellent. We'll link up all that stuff to make it easy for folks to find you. Suzanne, this has been so much fun catching up. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun.